couple of weeks ago at the, the Lunch Bunch event in um, Milford. Uh, I was talking to someone and they said, but sometimes God lets you down. And I suggested to her that sometimes it may be the case that we have wrong expectations of God. Therefore, it seems as if he has let us down. But there is a sense that we do feel at times let down by God. Who of us hasn't had unanswered prayers? Who of us hasn't had unfulfilled hopes? Who of us hasn't been left in complete perplexity, left in the dark and wondering Perhaps, why did that have to happen? Why did it have to happen at all? Why did it have to happen at this time? Does he not care? Oh yes, we're told that he has bigger plans, greater plans. But how do we know? These things challenge our faith. Because if, if, we, can't, if we don't feel that we can trust God with those things, how can we trust him with the big things? Like eternity and salvation. And so we come to John's gospel here. And John, remember, has lived through the persecutions of Nero. Most likely the news has filtered back to John that all the other disciples have uh, been persecuted, have been executed for their faith. And he writes this gospel of his so that we might believe so that we might keep on believing. And he includes this incident here, which none of the other gospel writers include, and that seems strange to us. Surely the raising of Lazarus from the dead is one of the standout miracles of the New Testament. And it is. But I wonder if John includes it because he sees a significance that the others perhaps didn't see. He's lived through these persecutions. He's lived through the discouragements. The first generation of Christians who put their trust in Jesus are dying out and Jesus hasn't returned. There's a delay. And how do you live when God delays? And for these first generation of Christians who, you know, were waiting for Jesus to come back and now they were being buried and their bodies were disintegrating in their grave... How would they know that Jesus could raise the dead? How would future generations down through the decades and centuries know to trust Jesus? With this, John, as the last remaining disciple, says, I have the very thing for you that helps you to trust God when he seems, when he does delay and when you're disappointed with him. And here's the very thing to help you trust him as you're looking at a grave and thinking, Jesus, when are you coming back? And are you able to raise the dead? And so we want to look at this this morning under uh, three headings. It's like a sandwich. Uh, We've got Jesus and then Mary and Martha and then back to Jesus again. And this this, uh, sandwich helps us to trust God when he delays. So, First of all, a loving delay. A loving delay. The scene is set for us uh, earlier at chapter 10, um, which we looked at 
many months ago, but at the end of it we read in verse 28 of chapter 10, uh, Jesus says to them, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Uh, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And at that moment the Jews, the religious authorities, pick up stones to stone him to death. And it says uh, in verse 31, again, they picked up stones. They've done this before. Chapter 8, they had done it. And then in chapter 10 uh, and verse 39, we read, Again they tried to seize him, and they escaped their grasp, and they went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing. And so Jesus, at this point, the religious authorities are out to get him, and he's gone about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. And he's teaching, and he's baptizing, and one day a messenger arrives. He's from Bethany, about two miles south of Jerusalem, from very close friends, And the message is simply, Lord, the one you love is sick. Maybe he's a household servant. And he knows which house this man is from. And he knows that these people who have taken Jesus under their wing, who have provided a home for him, at times a place for him to to lay his head, who have put their wealth and their house at his disposal, Lazarus is sick. Then we read something, the first of a number of strange things, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is verse 5. Then verse 6. So, now that's a better translation than than some uh, English versions of the NIV that we have in the church here says. Yet, it's not a contrast that is being drawn. It's a connection that's being made. And the ESV and the new NIV actually say so. So when he heard. He loved them. So when he heard Lazarus was ill. He stayed where he was two more days. Now, you would expect it to read that he got up quickly and left immediately. But it doesn't say that. He loved them, so he delayed. This delay is specifically because he loves them. Now, it had taken the messenger four days to get there, most likely. There is the issue of haste, but Jesus delays two more days and then embarks on the four-day return trip over the 150 kilometers. And then the mystery deepens because as he's about to depart, he informs the disciples that Lazarus has already died. Now, when the messenger arrived, he says, Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. So it would seem that when the messenger arrived, Lazarus Still alive, Jesus knows he's alive, but now, two days later, he informs the disciples that Lazarus is dead. How did he know? Didn't get an email or a text or a phone call. This can really only be by his divine omniscience. He knows all things. Well, that only deepens the mystery. Surely, if he knows it by his divine powers, could he not have healed him without having to go? to Bethany. Already in John's Gospel in chapter 4, there was the nobleman's son, and the nobleman said, come, come, before my son dies. And Jesus says, you may go, your son lives. The nobleman got home, and when he got home, he found that the son had got better at the very hour Jesus had spoken. Why does he not do that? And then the mystery deepens even further as we go on uh, down uh, to verse 15, and Jesus 
says, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there. Pardon? How can he say that he's glad that he wasn't there to do anything about it, even though we didn't even need to be there to do anything about it? But we're going to see that this delay is out of love. And two reasons are given for this. First of all, we're told in verse 4, This illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. God delays so that God's people can see more of God's glory. God waits so that you can see his glory in a way you might not or could not otherwise see. That's what's happening here. And not only that, verse 14, he says, I am, uh, verse 15 rather, I was glad I was not there so that you may believe. Here's the other reason for the delay. It's so that the disciples' faith can be strengthened and deepened and they can be equipped to live for him in circumstances that they don't even yet know about. Trusting him amidst all sorts of trials and difficulties. So this is to give them a glimpse of God's glory they couldn't otherwise see and to equip them to trust in circumstances that they didn't yet know about. Here's here's how Jesus loves us. He doesn't answer things immediately because he has better plans for his people to give us a glimpse of glory and to strengthen our faith. And we might say, ah, but Mark, surely... It says here that so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Does that not sound as if he's using Lazarus' death and illness and Martha and Mary's pain to grandstand, to, to show off his abilities? I wouldn't like Jesus to do that in my life. I would be afraid of him glorifying himself, we might think, in my life. I don't want my life to be the stage on which he shows off. No, 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 that's not it at all. We don't ever need to fear God displaying his glory because he's not showing off. Because for Jesus to say, so the Son of God may be glorified, in John's Gospel, the Son of God being glorified is referring to him going to his death, going to the cross. Later on, he said, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that's where his glory is going to be most seen, is at the cross. And him, him waiting and delaying, and then going and raising Lazarus from the dead, in person, puts him in the place where all the events, the chain reaction of events that is going to lead in his crucifixion in about six to eight weeks' time, He's going to set that chain of events in motion. And then he will be even more glorified than he will be in raising Lazarus from the dead. So we need to remember that for the Son of God to display his glory is something that cost him more than we can ever imagine. And he did it because he loved us. And we don't need to fear him doing that. Displaying his glory He's not using our lives as a stage. He's working in our lives to help us see something that has been purchased at great cost 
and will equip us to live for him in this world. It's out of love. It's a loving delay. And so Jesus comes in extra late. And just for a moment, let's think of some of Jesus' other resurrections. Jairus' daughter had just died. And Jesus goes and he says to her, little girl, I say to you, get up. Or as a father would say, it's time to get up, pet. That's the sort of wakening he does there. She's just passed away. The widow's son has died, just died. He's being borne out uh, to be buried because you were buried in the same day you died. And Jesus sees this woman, sees her tears. And he reaches up and touches the, the bier on which he's being carried and he sits up. Now, the Jews had this superstitious belief that the soul hovered over the body for three days until the body really started to decay and then the soul went. That was, it wasn't a religious teaching from the Bible. It was a superstitious folk belief. And here's one of the ways Jesus' glory is displayed here. The delay means that Lazarus will be dead for four days. If Jesus had left immediately, Lazarus would have been dead for two days. And if Jesus came and said, Lazarus, come out, you can imagine the watchers saying, you know, hi, there's something to that old folk tale after all. What do you know? Lazarus' soul was here the whole time and, and he listened to Jesus and, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 that's not, Jesus won't have it. Jesus wants us to see that no matter how long it takes for him to come back, no matter how long our bodies are in the ground, no matter how dust to dust they have returned, and he speaks, life comes. And no matter how long the delay is, no matter how life has gone, as we'll see later, he is able. And this is to strengthen their faith and our faith. And so, remember, John is telling us this to help us believe, to help us to have faith. When faith is hard, when there's a delay, when Jesus doesn't come immediately to answer our prayers the way we would like, when Jesus doesn't come and change our circumstances and we're left struggling with poor health or illness or disease or injury, Whenever Jesus doesn't come and change our loved one's hearts, now, when we are praying and pleading that he would do it, when there seems to be a delay in providing what we want, John wants us to see that we are to remember that if Jesus delays, it's because he loves his people. And he is going to display his glory in a better way. And he will help us to trust him. So will we trust him when he delays four days or four months or four years or maybe four decades? Or if he delays four millennia before he comes back? James Montgomery Boyce, a preacher, um, said this. He said, the delays of Christ turn out to be the delays of love. Hard to see. But we're told it here so that we can hang on to it. Secondly, looking at Martha and Mary, we see a perplexed trust. A perplexed trust. Jesus arrives and word comes into the home of Martha. She goes out to, to, to meet Jesus and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
I don't think that's an accusation of blame. I think there's puzzlement there. I think there's disappointment there, perhaps. I think there's perplexity there. There's also trust. Look at the next verse, verse 22. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. A wonderful mix of perplexity and trust. Mary says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think it's a statement of faith. Because they keep on saying things about their faith. Verse 22. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Verse 24. I know that he will rise again. Verse 27. Jesus has said to her, do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Yes, they're perplexed. Yes, perhaps they're disappointed. Yes, they're puzzled. But wonderfully, these believers are not letting their perplexity or their pain or their disappointment cause them to not trust Jesus. They keep trusting. And in doing so, they set for us a wonderful pattern for how we are to live amidst the delay. We'll be puzzled. We'll be perplexed. Our hearts may even be broken at times. We may be disappointed, but we're to keep trusting. That's what we see here. Jesus has something else here for uh, Martha and for Mary. He has a promise for her. In In verse, let me see, verse 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever believes in me will never die. Into her perplexity, into her pain, Jesus speaks a promise. She has spoken abstractly. And said, yes, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. It's a future event. It's something that happens away off then. And in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her confusion, in the midst of her perplexity, in the midst of her puzzlement, Jesus says to her, in a sense, look at me. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. Do you believe? It's not just some future event that you're hoping in. He says, it's standing in front of you. I'm it. I'm it. All of those hopes, all of those promises that you're banking in, dear Martha, I'm them. I'm standing in front of you. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm it. You're not just hoping in a future event. You're hoping in me. I'm here. Do you trust me? And that's before his own resurrection. For us who hear at this side of the resurrection, surely there's even more weight to that where Jesus comes to us and says, look, look at me. Don't look at your circumstances. Don't even just simply look at an abstract promise in black and white on the page of your Bible. Remember what Paul says that all God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of of every promise that God makes to his people. How do you know it is true? 
Fix your eyes on Jesus. He says, I'm it. I'm it. Here's how we're to trust in the middle of perplexity. We'll fix our eyes on our problems. Or we can fix our eyes on promises. Or we can go better. We can fix our eyes on the person. The person of Jesus. And all that he's done for us. And we're to look at him. And we're to believe. Maybe this morning you're not yet fully trusting in Christ as your Savior. He comes to you this morning and he says, Look, death is going to meet you one day. You will not escape it. But I'm the resurrection and the life. I can give you eternal life. I will go to the cross. I will pay for your sins. I will rise. I'm the appointed Messiah. That's what Mary or Martha has said. You are the Son of God, the Messiah who was to come into the world. Do you say that? If you say that this morning, I believe that you are the Messiah, the one who was to come into the world to rescue us from our sins. Jesus says, do you believe it? Will you believe it? If you believe it, you too will have eternal life. Are you a Christian this morning? Will you believe amidst the delay and the uncertainty and the frustration and the doubt and the pain and the disappointment, maybe even amidst accusations that are running through your mind towards God? Will you believe that if you have Jesus, you have the answer to all the pain and disappointment. Will you hang on to him, even when pain and hurt and delay strike? Jesus comes to you this morning and says, Who do you say I am? And we give the answer that comes out of our heads, the right answer. And then he says to us gently, he says, Now, do you believe it? Do you believe it? So, a perplexed trust. Trusting amidst perplexity. And then finally, a triumphant compassion. A triumphant compassion. And we could take, this whole chapter is so colossal, we could spend months on it. It is, it is so beautifully rich. And we're going to just skip quickly over these three points. But you could take them this week and think on each one of them in your own, in your own devotions, your own Bible reading. A triumphant compassion. In this bit, we're looking back at Jesus now. And, and really, we're looking at him and saying, Okay, I hear that his delay is loving, but what do I see here that shows me that he can be trusted and that I know he loves me? Well, watch him. Watch him and see, first of all, his tender compassion. We read in verse 33 that Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews along with her weeping. He's deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? They asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then that beautiful little verse, Jesus wept. Is there anything more profound than reading of God the Son weeping? Is that not amazing? He's not weeping because Lazarus is dead. He knows he's going to raise him in five minutes. He's not weeping because he's lost a dear friend never to see him again the way we would weep. He's not weeping because he'll never see him. He's about to raise him. And yet he weeps. I think that is one of the loveliest things about our Savior. He doesn't come to Mary and Martha and say, Look, look, it's okay. It's okay. Watch what I'm going to do here. He comes and he weeps with them. 
He comes alongside them in their sorrow. He sees their pain and it bothers him. And even though he knows he's going to make everything right, he weeps because their pain bothers him. And you know, he could say to us, look, look, settle down. Trust me, I'm going to make everything good. And when you've been in heaven for two minutes, you will forget all the pain and all the delay and all the frustration of this life. That's true, we will. But he doesn't say that to us. He doesn't say to Martha and Mary, look, settle down, steady with the weeping and the howling. Two minutes time, Lazarus will be here, it'll be okay, trust me. He has the utmost tender compassion for Martha and Mary. And he weeps with them. Do we doubt if he loves us? Do we doubt if he cares at times? Well, look at this and read those two words, Jesus wept, and know that he does not stand by impassively watching, saying, oh, if only they knew that I'll make it right for them. No, not at all. He cares and he loves. And even now as he looks on at our worried faces and sees our burdened hearts and he sees the mess that our personal battles with sin we have to wade through, He sees the physical and the mental and the spiritual scars. He is not unmoved. He cares. He cares deeply. Could you trust such a Savior who cares so much? Secondly, we see another emotion stirring in his heart. And it's a surprising one. It's holy outrage. We see it in verses 33 And then in 38, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And uh, again, the NIV here doesn't quite capture the sense when it says deeply moved. that The phrase could be translated much better. He was deeply angered. He was utterly indignant. Uh, The word can mean outrage or indignation or anger. And the phrase, and was troubled, can be translated, he was agitated. There's something stirring in him. Something is, there's a rising holy fury in Jesus Christ. Why? Is it because they're weeping? No. It's because he sees the mess that Satan and sin and death have brought into the world. Like a vandal breaking into somebody's home and trashing their most precious possessions and leaving all sorts of filth and stench behind all over their their best of gifts. He sees Satan's sin and death has done that to his friends Martha and Mary. And he is not just blithely watching. He is furious. This is not the way God intends his creation to be. And he sees the redness of their eyes and the swollenness of their eyes and their tear-streaked faces. And he sees the grubby fingerprints of sin and Satan all over God's creation. Not Martha and Mary's personal sin, not that. But that's what sin has caused because of Adam and Eve. He sees the wreckage that it has left. And he is outraged. And here, whilst there are tears of compassion on his face 
there is a holy, righteous fury in his heart. Is it not good to know that? That Jesus is not indifferent to all of the ugliness of sin and its effects in this world. And even though he delays, we can look at this passage and we can say to ourselves, we know that it matters to him. And his delay doesn't mean that he doesn't care. He doesn't, it's not that he doesn't care for his people and it's not that he doesn't care at the mess and the pain. Every fiber of his holy being is perfect and sinless and is angry at this mess that sin and Satan leave. Could you trust such a Savior with the delay? When you see how much it matters. He is biding his time, but he will come. He will come. And then the third component that we need to know. We need to know that he's filled with compassion for his people. We need to know that he's filled with outrage at the mess that sin causes and the pain that sin causes. But is he able to do anything about it? Is he able to put it right? And we see thirdly triumphant power. And Jesus approaches the grave of Lazarus, his friend. Not with uncontrolled grief, but with irrepressible, holy fury in his spirit. Death will not win today. Death will not triumph in Bethany this day. Satan will not have the last word. John Calvin says he goes like a wrestler preparing for a contest. Not as some sort of idle spectator. He goes with tears in his cheeks into battle to show his mighty power. And here you see the heart of your Savior with regard to your salvation and mine. He doesn't come with a cold detachedness. He comes with power and love and a holy hatred of sin. And he says, Lazarus, come out. Like Moses said to Pharaoh, Let my people go. Jesus walks to the tomb and says, Let my Lazarus go. Lazarus comes out. You know, it's astonishing. The body has started to decay. It has started to break down biologically in all sorts of ways. And Jesus speaks. And there's this reversal. That fleshly decay reverses. And the the bacteria reverse and the molecules return to their rightful place. And the heart becomes whole and starts to beat. And the synapses in the brain start to fire. And the lungs start to inflate. And the signals are being sent around the nervous system and the eyes open and and signals start to flow through the optic nerve to the brain. Just because he says, Lazarus, come out. Do we doubt that he has got power? Four days. Lord, he stinks. Martha says, Jesus, open the tomb. Let him out. Triumphant power. Could you trust such a saviour who loves you so much 
who has such power at his disposal, even when he delays and we feel confusion and disappointment, will you trust him? You may not understand his delay, but you cannot doubt his love or his power. John writes this account so that you might believe and so that you might keep on believing. Amen. Let's, if we're able, stand as we come to God in prayer. O Lord God, what a sight! The powerful Son of Man, weeping beside his friends. He understands their pain, their perplexity, their disappointment, their uncertainty as to why things worked out this way. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. We thank you for that. We thank you that he does not come with well-meant promises and truth, simply. We thank that he comes himself with love and compassion and stands with us and that we have a God in God the Son who weeps with his people. We thank you for such love. But we thank you too that he doesn't simply give us promises on a page, but that in giving us promises, he himself stands in front of us as the guarantor guarantor of the promises, as the one in whom all the promises find their yes and amen. And he says, look at me. Look at me. Now do you believe that I will keep my word no matter the cost? We thank you that we have such a Savior and help us to believe that he will keep his word no matter the cost. Father, help us to keep believing when there's a delay. Help us to keep believing when our prayers aren't answered. Help us to keep believing when things don't go the way we would want. Help us to keep trusting. And Lord, we pray that our faith would be strengthened and that we would see your glory working itself out in far better ways than we had ever prayed for. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.